Ah, what a difference a day makes. Busy old day on your radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Why go back? Why watch 40 kilometres going out of the country? Um, and you're part of a tiny trickle of traffic going into your country as the war starts. Because if, if you try to imagine that uh, you lose your country, you lose your state, and you don't have a place anymore where you can speak your language, this is so painful. I mean, we cannot allow that. One of our team members, and she wants to know, is Niall seeing anyone? Yes. Oh, he is. No, he is. Can, I even came across a device that can measure your hydration and essentially it goes into the toilet depending on... It goes into the toilet? It goes into the toilet, yeah. I won't go any, into any more detail than that. Oh <laughs> and we'll start with an eye to events in Westminster. After a chaotic night, the morning was filled with anticipation of the day to come and in the afternoon the inevitable happened. Journalist Fiona Mitchell was talking to Brian Dobson on the News at One as Liz Truss approached the podium outside number 10. The events of last night in the Commons, really, Brian, um, were just so chaotic and so quite clearly distressing for many Conservative MPs. It just and seemed Fiona, to me that there would I'll be just, no way back. I'll just cut across you because I see Liz Truss coming to the podium now. The door is open. The Prime Minister's here with her husband. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until has been chosen. Thank you. So Liz Truss there concluding her fairly brief statement announcing that she has tendered her resignation uh, as Prime Minister um, and uh, that there will be an election now to find a replacement. She says uh, completed within the next week. She told the journalist waiting there in Downing Street that she could not deliver on the mandate on which she had been elected to leave the uh, Conservatives. So Liz Truss, elected leader of the Tory party in Britain on the 5th of September, appointed Prime Minister on the 6th of September, uh, today on the 20th of October, has resigned. Uh, Fiona Mitchell is still standing by. Um, so Fiona, as we as we expected, as you uh, correctly anticipated there just a few moments ago, Liz Truss standing down as leader of the Conservatives and uh, as Prime Minister um, and saying that there's going to be a replacement within a week. Well, that suggests they're not going to have this um, Conservative Party membership election. Could that be the, the case? 
No, that would certainly appear to be the case. I mean, all the talk in recent days has been that if she does step down and that announcement, as you say, was expected, but it was no less shocking for it, given how how short a time Liz Truss has been in power. Um, but a lot of the speculation in recent days was about how a leadership election could take place that didn't involve the months long process that took place over the summer and that, frankly, didn't involve the Conservative Party membership, because remember, they are the people who ultimately made the choice about Liz Truss as leader. And there is a, a very deep sense amongst many Conservative MPs um, that they understand how bad this looks to the broader electorate in the UK. A lot of people, of course, the Labour Party now are going to be calling for a general election and a lot of people saying, well, how can we complete, uh, continue in this um, round of new leader after new leader, there is a point at which you have to go to the country and they're going to come under intense pressure for that. And frankly, there are a lot of Conservative MPs who agree with that view, but who may not publicly say so, because of course the polls would suggest that many of those MPs, if an election was called immediately, would lose their seats. And so they are very, very conscious of that. Fiona Mitchell from the News at One with Brian Dobson. Then on Liveline, Joe was picking up the reaction to the resignation of Liz Truss. You heard there in the last few minutes, uh, resigning. Uh, she was reigning for, what, 45 days, but now she's the resigning uh, British Prime Minister, Liz Truss. She says, I recognise, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. 81,326 members of the Conservative Party uh, elected her, and who said 81,326 people can't be wrong? Nessa Parkinson. Nessa, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. You've, How are you doing? You've just heard this as well. What's, what yes. do you think? You're, where are you, where are you, you're, you're based in London. I'm in London, yeah, North London, yeah. I've been here for a long time now. Um, what can I say? We kind of—I woke up this morning thinking this was bound to happen today. After all the events that went on down in the, in Parliament last night, I mean, the, it's just absolutely shocking, isn't it? Uh, the behaviour and and the carry on and the mess that the Conservative Party is in. But uh, she has caused absolute disaster over here, and uh, you know she's crashed the economy, she's ruined the pound, she's put hundreds of pounds on on people's mortgages, mine included. I'm absolutely furious. And she comes out today and not so much as an apology. You know, it's not even just personally her fault. Well, it is personally her fault, but the whole Conservative Party that put her in there, knowing what a risk she was, she's an absolute loose cannon. Well, that's the the system. And and in fairness, the Labour Party in the UK have the same system as well. That's the system that elected Jeremy Corbyn. Um, But... That's that's the system now. Now they're about to change it, and especially if there's an agreed candidate, they will see Jeremy Hunt. According to Sam Coates and Sky News, Jeremy Hunt has ruled himself out of standing well, for prime minister, so he'll stay. He'll stay yeah. as um as chancellor, as chancellor of the exchequer. You mentioned your mortgage. How much have you calculated, and what your mortgage will go up by? Oh, I can't even keep looking at it. But at least four hundred pounds a month. Yeah, at least £400 a month. Nessa there. Then Labour Party councillor Elizabeth Rhodes talked to Joe. Elizabeth Rhodes is a Labour Party councillor in Wakefield in Yorkshire. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, most people were expecting it, though she had a very good performance, people said yesterday at a Prime Minister's questions. But um, what's what's the reaction? I'm sure it's joy where, where you are, Elizabeth. Hello, Joe. Nice to speak to you. I listen to your programme every day when I have the chance. Thanks very much. And uh, yes, um, I think most people, after the situation in the House of Commons yesterday um, and what's happened in her 
her ownership as a, a PM for 44 days has been an absolute disgrace. And the people here that I represent, and I'm sure up and down the country, mm-hmm. who at the moment are in dire straits with food crisis, with the cost of energy, with an incompetent government, I think up and down the country there's going to be a sigh of relief that Liz Truss has gone. She showed herself to be incompetent. She showed herself not as a prime minister caring for the people of this country to be aware of what was needed and only Mm. repeated over and over again whatever she was questioned on, the same statement about growth in a country at the same time as she'd actually supported a budget which put the country in debt to £64 billion. Well, is, it, is it fair to say, Elizabeth, she, when she was travelling around in the hostings, and a lot of them were telling, she was the populist candidate. She promised everything under the sun. Richie Sunak said, we have to pay for this. Taxes might have to go up. He was the realistic candidate in, 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 in that sense. But he was seen as, um, as dour and dull and uh, pessimistic. Where Liz Truss kept saying, we growth, growth, growth. And she never talked about or never mentioned how we pay for it. And then when, when uh, Kwasi Kwartang uh, introduced his, um, his budget, everything was in it except how you pay for it about how they, how they pay for it, was borrowing. So is, that a, is that a lesson about populist politics? It certainly is, Joe, because in all, any hustings or during any campaign, and I from Cashel have been a proud Labour councillor for 38 years representing my area, but the one thing that everybody must agree and should actually say and do what they mean, you do not go out there promising what you can't mm-hmm. achieve because that's how you become popular. But in the real, the real world, you can't deliver on promises and the actions that came out as a result of Liz and the way that she had her campaign. And quite rightly, quite rightly, there is a situation now where I've just heard on TV, the same as the world news, uh, in a week's time, they're supposed mm. to have a prime minister in place. Yeah. Now, in our country here, we have the 1922 committee of the Tory party, who actually have sat down this morning and decided that in a week, contrary to the constitution already in place that Liz Truss and Sunak and those went through, in a week they're going to have a a quick campaign to put a next leader PM in place. And that is not going to give even their members the chance to vote. So the sooner that we get round to having a campaign in this country and put forward the idea, which is a sound idea and sound politics, that we actually say it's a general election that we need for the people of this country to have their say on what government they want for the future. And as it stands at the moment, Joe, the way that this government has over, not just over this trusses, uh, 44 days, but in recent years, the scandals, the party gate, everything that's gone on, I do hope that we have the chance as a country and as a people to put forward our views that says enough is enough. We need sound leadership. We need sound mm. fiscal policies. We don't need anybody, and I mean anybody, and I would say this in my own party as well. We do not need anybody standing up there and making promises without knowing where the money is going to come from. It's hard enough at the moment, Joe, up mm. and down this country. We have food banks in this day and age. We have working people going to food banks. We've got teachers 
I heard about this yesterday. We have teachers, we have professional people now going to food banks. As local members and local councillors, we are aware of our people now through this terrible, non-fiscally looked at policy of people now having to find an extra five to six hundred pounds a month to pay for their mortgage. Labour councillor Elizabeth Rhodes there. Then later, Joe spoke to Anna Subri. Anna, Anna Subri is on the line. Anna, good afternoon. Former Tory party MP, you, you opposed. You were one of the main people, uh, some people say very courageously opposing Brexit. You're now leader, leader of the independent group for change. Did well, you no, see... because we, we, we folded after the 2019 oh, okay. election. So I'm out of Parliament. And OK, you're... you're uh, I'm fairly for, normal. Yeah, but you're still involved in public life. What do you think, Anna? <laughs> Anna, of did you see this coming? Yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't see her lasting. Last night was so bad. Yeah. Really serious. I mean it was bad enough when Sue look, everything's been really bad. But then uh, losing the home secretary in those circumstances, that was like a that escalated things, accelerated things. Mm-hmm. And then the scenes from the House of Commons, which I'm, I'm assuming you and your listeners yes, will absolutely, have seen. Yeah, I always feel the need to apologise, yeah. by the way. No, don't, uh, Anna, because we, we, so are, we are as engaged. I think it's fair to say that most people in Ireland are as, uh, as engaged with this as people in the shires are Yeah, but you must north. look at it in... Well, I think the whole world doesn't say, what the hell has happened to Britain? Anyway, last night's scenes. Really, the whole, uh, not just the scenes, but what had led to them. And then this complete confusion. And then one minute you have the chief whips resigned and she's, no, she's not resigned. She's staying. Complete, total chaos, breakdown of party discipline, complete lack of authority. And it was, I think I had said last night um, to uh, one of your shows, television shows, that I didn't think Mm. she would, she'd be gone by by the end of the week. And indeed she has gone. And quite right, too. And what's going to happen next, Anna? So apparently they're going to have uh, an election. I mean, I can't Mm. believe I'm actually describing all of this. But they're going to have an election next week and there'll be a new prime minister by Friday and then everything will be fine. Well, of course, it won't. (laughs) Who do you think? Uh, You you can't carry on like this. Who do you think the new PM will be? God knows. I mean, if they've got any sense, Mm -hmm. we could debate whether the Conservative Party has any sense left. They'll settle on uh, Richie Sunak because he came second to her. Well, that's true, yeah. yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean to say they will do it. I think it must be likely, though. Um, but then you don't know whether the um, the, the, what I, the hard line, um, ideologically driven, slightly mad in my view, hard Brexiteers will mm-hmm. then put up with Sunak. So there'll still be arguments, division, and, and chaos. I think the chaos may not be on such a scale, but there will still be those difficulties. And that's no way to run any government, but in particular, in the middle of such an appalling cost of living crisis. Because as every day goes by, ordinary folk have found themselves in a position whereby their food bills have gone up by 14%. And because of the actions of this appalling government, people are genuinely worried about whether they will also be able to make their mortgage payments if they have tried to buy their own home. So that all carries on, and you've got this government that is just, frankly, not fit to govern, and the Conservative Party is not fit to govern. And you can't just swap your leaders, like, you know, it's Buggins' turn, who's going to be mm-hmm. captain of the football team today. 
Um, and that's why the only way through it is to have a general election. And that's what we need. But there's an 80-seat majority. You, you've been, you were in Westminster long enough to know the ins and outs. They ain't going to give that up easily. Well, you're right, of course. Uh, and, of course, you know, most people are not turkeys who are going to be voting yeah. for Christmas. Literally, it um, is. That's good. Though the Labour Party did that in 2019. Yeah. I think, it, it's, I think it's, it genuinely is up to the British people to, to say whether or not they can tolerate any more of this uh, appalling carry-on. Um, and, and my, I mean, all I know, I mean, I, I work, I'm back working as a criminal barrister. Mm-hmm. All I know is that I went to court today and every single person that spoke to me about what was going on was mm-hmm. just saying, this is appalling. This ca- we cannot go on like this. And that's why, you know, yeah, let's have a new prime minister. Let's put Keir Starmer in number 10. At least he's competent, he's decent, he's honest. And it will give us stability. Former Tory MP Anna Subri on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell was looking at the issue of housing, the uncertainty of finding a place to live and the rising cost of everything. Today, Brian, I know you want to look at the length some employers are going to to try to help employees get accommodation. And also, you've looked at what's available right now. Yes, and that's something we've done regularly over the past while. Claire looked at how many properties are available in some of our main cities. Now, we'll come back to, to that one, because as you said, we reported yesterday on the large increase in number seeking assistance from the charity Cork Penny Dinners and as they told us many of those they're helping now are not homeless in contrast say to two to three years ago so from those I've been talking to getting work isn't really the issue it's getting work that pays enough and also getting somewhere to live that allows you to work. And as I mentioned there before the break you spent time with an employer who's had to go to some really extraordinary lengths to give employees some certainty around housing. I met with Kevin Hurley and along with his uh, brother Brian he owns multiple centrist stores in Cork they've about I think 300 employees but 120 of those are full time now they began seeing issues around housing uh, about two years ago but things became critical just coming out of lockdown It really started around 2018 2019 everybody really thinks it, it, it happened around Covid and stuff like that but we saw it happening even before that and um, when we started emerging out of the, the lockdowns last year, it was really, really hard to get staff. So we took a decision as a company to um, go down the route of um, acquiring accommodation for our staff. And you wouldn't have done this before? No, never. Um, I'm working in the industry 22 years and I would have never uh, considered housing anybody like that. I mean, it's one thing to provide someone with a job, but now you're having to look at their housing needs as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we dipped our toe in the water last year by renting one house and basically we weren't in it to make any money. We rented a house at €1,600 per month with four bedrooms. We put four staff into it, which we brought in from abroad. Um, They're all paying €400 a month. They can stay in that house for as long as they're working with us. So far, so good. It's been working very well. So that's one property. Did you stop at that? Uh, yeah, we had to snowball from that. So we ended up renting four houses. And then over the summer, we purchased an eight-bedroomed house on Magazine Road. We're the landlords of this house and we have eight staff uh, living in those houses now as well. It's extraordinary, really, isn't it? It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, we have, of a staff of 300, we have over 30 staff housed by us now. They're all on full-time contracts, though, so they're covering an awful lot of the work. Uh, it's something I would never, never have envisaged before. Um, and just even to put it into perspective, um, 
we had a, a baker that came in from Croatia and he could not get accommodation in our store in Formoy. So we had to put him into one of the houses uh, that we have on the south side of the city and my brother had to give him the loan of uh, his daughter's car and the guy was uh, commuting from uh, Tlachine down to Formoy every day um, in, in my niece's car. So Kevin Hurley there, so he said he's housing about 10%, Brian, isn't it, of his workforce? Yes, and as you heard, this isn't something they would ever have contemplated before. He's doing this because they kept losing staff who were unable to secure accommodation, even in the medium term. Now, outside of his own business, Kevin is president of the Cork Business Association. So he's obviously engaged with many employers who face very similar issues, as he told me. Any person that I'm talking to who owns a centra or a super value or, or indeed even in hospitality, they're all finding it really, really hard to get people. And it's all down to the fact that they can't get accommodation in Cork City. And I know that Dublin is even worse. An average room in Cork City might be, say, 800 euros a month. You've got somebody who's earning 11 or 12 euros an hour. The, the, the maths just don't add up. So how do we solve it? I'd be hoping that there'd be more houses built sooner rather than later. Um, and that there might be some kind of alleviation given towards people who might be earning less. I went into um, a cafe yesterday in Cork City. I like quiche. Um, and they, there's a particular cafe that does nice quiche. And I went in and they said, sorry, we're not doing quiche today. We've no staff. And that just answers the question, you know. I suppose one maybe slight issue I might see with it is that those staff are now very dependent on you because they're dependent on you for their source of, source of income, but they're dependent on you for their housing as well. So I've got people from overseas who are working for me here um, and they've really come to Ireland to earn as much money as they possibly can over a couple of years. And uh, I've got one guy, he's from overseas, he's over here, he's sending back, um, whatever, two, two and a half thousand euros a month back to his own country. And his plan is he's going to stay here for four or five years, he's going to go back home and he's going to buy a house and start a family. And that's very admirable out of that guy. You know, I suppose you could say he's using me for the couple of years and I'm using him. I wouldn't call it the word using is probably not the right word, but it's Certainly, uh, it's a good um, partnership between both of us. I'm providing him with employment and accommodation. He's here with cheap accommodation, earning a reasonable wage, and he's sending the money home. Kevin Hurley, he of Centra, talking to Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tupperdy's guest was an award-winning writer and journalist from Ukraine. Victoria Amalina was talking about resistance in the face of invasion and how the arts are important in times of war. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm mainly a novelist. Uh, so I wrote two novels, of course, concerning Ukrainian history, uh, because this is what we were trying to do before the full-scale invasion, when uh, Ukrainians got really visible. We were trying to explain ourselves to the world and uh, talk about our dramatic past and uh, I can assure you that unfortunately our past is as dramatic as our present Uh, so I was trying to to explore those topics in my novels Uh, I was born in 1986 which is the year of uh, Chernobyl catastrophe Mm -hmm. which uh, I'm sure you've heard of Um, so um, I kind of when I was a kid I witnessed uh, the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union and Ukrainian independence Um, but then uh, uh, things somehow didn't uh, really work well and we had to do uh, two more revolutions in Ukraine in 2004 and then 2014 to uh, overthrow um, like autocratic pro-Russian government and I participated in that. Yes. So I was trying to explore why things went as they, as they went and why um, 
people got killed in the center of uh, European capital, Kiev, in 2013. And uh, then, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. And um, the novel I was working on when the full-scale invasion started was of, uh, about the invasion in 2014. It's it's impossible to be contemporary, I think, at the moment, because events are moving so fast that contemporary becomes old very quickly. Yes, sure. So, so yeah, I, I had to stop writing uh, my novel and uh, and get back uh, to um to just working on the ground uh, i spent march working in the humanitarian aid warehouse yeah. in lviv because uh, it was more important to carry boxes and make sure that uh, uh cars full of humanitarian aid uh, go to places like kiev kharkiv mariupol um than writing anything i'm trying to since this since the war started i was trying to figure out a couple of things you might be able to help me uh, i love my country and and I was trying to think if if a if a bully of a country near mine tried to take over some part or all of it, what would I do? And that's that's an easy question to ask over a coffee or a pint or what have you. But in real life, as is in has happened to you, when this happened and you heard the first sirens going, or you knew that it, that uh, that projections and forecasts became reality, what was your intellectual emotional and patriotic response to this? Well, you see, when uh, the full-scale invasion started, I was on vacation in Egypt mm-hmm. among foreigners, and uh, my flight back home was uh, scheduled uh, for 7 a.m. February 24th. Uh, but when we came to the airport, we were told that uh, we have we cannot go back home because, you know, the airlines do not operate in Ukraine anymore. So I spent two days trying uh, to get back uh, to Ukraine and I crossed uh, Polish-Ukrainian border on mm-hmm. February uh, 26th. So I witnessed this long line of uh, refugees trying to, to flee Ukraine. But uh, I was among those who who uh, uh, went in, in the opposite direction mm-hmm. trying to get back into the country and I saw men which were... Uh, coming back, uh, obviously, to, to fight. Uh, and people like me who were carrying already some humanitarian aid, like necessary uh, medicine uh, uh, and uh, uh, other stuff which would, would help uh, civilians and the army. Um, so why? why? Why were you doing that? This is the question I'm really asking is why, why do that? Why go back? Why watch 40 kilometers going out of the country? Um, and you're part of a tiny trickle of traffic going into your country as the war starts. What, where's that coming from? Where's the, where's the passion, the need, the desire? Because if if you try to imagine that uh, you lose your country, you lose your state, and you don't have a place anymore where you can speak your language, where your your culture is uh, is a thing, you lose your home essentially. Uh, this is uh, this is so painful. I mean, we cannot allow that. And Ryan asked Victoria about the Russian attacks outside of the front line, bombing cities and the attempts to disrupt normal life for Ukrainians. There are places which are already completely destroyed, like Mariupol or mm. Severodonetsk, uh, other cities in uh, like Bakhmut in the Donetsk region. Um, and at the same time, uh, in Kiev and in Lviv, we try to pretend like uh, life is normal. How, then, how do you do that? 
Um, you go for coffee. Yeah, you go yeah. for coffee. Yeah, yeah, you can wake up and go for coffee. Well, usually, really often you wake up from the sound of the air raid alert. Um, then you might hear some explosions, unfortunately. Um, but anyways, uh, then you would uh, just um, go on with your life, go for coffee, um, do yeah. whatever work you have, meet with friends. Uh, I mean, even in Kharkiv, which is uh, in the very east and it is being shelled uh, daily and many buildings are destroyed. But even in Kharkiv, uh, some cafes are open and you can even order pizza, which I think those deliver guys are heroic I mean they 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 don't care because um, they they want to actually this is important you know um, it is though isn't it I mean not to be glib but the the, the the man or woman on the bike delivering pizza is 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 like a it, it's, it's kind of like saying to the to the enemy we will continue you keep going as you will, and we will, as we will. There's yeah. a, there's a, it's there's like saying what 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 one guy told to the Russian warship. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I hear what you're exactly, saying. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. We're being very polite about yeah, uh, hiding but, the profanities, but yes, yes, yes. That, that's what it is. Go on, sorry. Uh, yeah, so th- this is what we do. I mean, I've uh, even been to a rock uh, music concert in Kharkiv in August. Uh, of course, it was in the underground uh, bar, so it was protected from from shelling uh but uh, i mean people have courage to to still sing songs the new songs there are many new uh, music yeah, yes, about yeah. the the war uh, and it is very important for me. You know, I, I've got tears in my eyes uh, at that court concert in Kharkiv because back then in uh, uh, f- the end of February and March and, and April, I couldn't imagine that I would be able to uh, attend a concert uh, in uh, in Kharkiv. Uh, um, and, and this is already, this feels like this, this feels like victory. So yeah. we have a lot of work to do. We need more weapons, and uh, many people will will um, will die. But um, having those concerts or literary readings um, in places like Kharkiv uh, yeah. f- makes you feel like you're winning. It's a, it's a form of resistance, I suppose. Of course, ways. because uh, Russians uh, want to destroy Ukrainian identity, of course, uh, and identities, I would say, because we are, you know, there are plural, we are really diverse and plural, but uh, they want to have this one Russian identity for us instead yeah. of... Ukrainian ones. So it's uh, very important to uh, give our culture a chance while they are targeting musicians, uh, writers. Uh, so Looting museums, taking, Looting museums, taking what they can. Right. We spoke yes. about that here before. As you're speaking, it reminds me of the Balkan conflagration in some ways uh, in the 90s. And, you know, there's a famous song that uh, Bono and um, The Edge wrote and he performed with Luciana Pavarotti called Miss Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. And talks about having a, a beauty pageant um, in the middle of the bombs. And that reminds me of your concert, you know, under the ground, which must have been very heightened in terms of emotion and reaction and mood. Yes. And is art, uh, culture, uh, journalism, if you like, is that, is, does that have a role in war or is it more important to put on a, a helmet and, and go to the front? Both things are important. Of course, uh, uh, going to the front is the best thing uh, you can do. And we have 
such a tremendous respect uh, and gratitude towards those who who fight for us. Mm-hmm. We understand that uh, cultural events are only possible because they are fighting. So this so is one's complementing the other in some ways. Yeah. Yes, but still, cultural resistance is important as well, uh, because yes, yes. of course, uh, soldiers uh, in the trenches do listen to the songs, uh, and it supports them. So it is important uh, as well. And Victoria spoke about art created during times of war. Even uh, those who fight, they they tell us that we are fighting for you to be able to somehow go on with your lives and and yeah. do art as well. So th- or you can do both. Very important. Yeah, you You're can, like Siegfried Sassoon in, in, the, in uh, World War One. Yeah, we have actually a couple of uh, writers uh, in the Ukrainian armed forces uh, who uh, miraculously have time to <laughs> take some notes. Uh, and for example, uh, Artem Chekh, I think he published uh, a piece in New York Times recently. So they, sometimes they they have, of course, they are in different places, and some have a chance to write, and others just um, uh, have to stay in the trenches with with no internet. So <laughs> it's different. Yeah it's, <laughs> yeah, it's different for everyone. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that uh, those who will come back uh, from the war will have uh, something to say. We've already had a, a lot of uh, novels and stories mm. about the war, which was uh, going on since 2014, but now it's a whole different dimension. Um, much like the the uh, the Balkan War and World War Two and probably any war in the history of time, um, war crimes persist, uh, and war crimes against women are particularly unsettling to say the least because they're vicious, they're sexual, um, in their violence, and it's happening. It's happening probably as we speak uh, in a country not very far away to your compatriots. Um, and I think we should talk about it for a minute um, because otherwise they win if it becomes unspoken about. Would that be fair to say? Would you like to talk about that for a moment? Uh, yes, and sure. Not that you'd like to talk about it, but let's bring it up here for a moment. Yes, this is an important uh, issue. And basically, unfortunately, the Russian army uses war crimes as a method of warfare. This mm-hmm. is their tactics. Uh, they want to instill fear, so there's a lot of sexual-based uh, violence, uh, unfortunately not even uh, only against women, but also children and men, uh, which is equally terrifying. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm a feminist, but at this time I feel like I'm being targeted not because I'm a woman, but because I'm Ukrainian, of course. But yeah, mostly this is this uh, sexual-based violence uh, against uh, women and uh, these are ones of the most horrific crimes which uh, uh, the survivors are not really um, able to speak about mm. freely because it's difficult for them. They're traumatized. Of yeah, course. it's traumatized. Um, you know, I'm writing uh, a non-fiction book uh, about those uh, who document war crimes in Ukraine and also about lawyers who work with the survivors. And uh, one of them uh, is a uh, lawyer, Larissa Denisenko, who is working with uh, the survivors of um, sexual violence mm-hmm. in this war. And it's really difficult. I mean, she uh, has cases ready, but uh, not every wom- woman is ready to um, actually go to the uh, police and, and make it a real case. It's very soon. Uh, it's very yes. soon. Victoria Amelina from The Ryan Tuberty Show. 
Now, it has over 200 symptoms, yet some people think it's all in your head. Claire Byrne was talking about long COVID with Dr. Danny Oldman, Professor of Immunology at Imperial College, and Gez Mendinger, an investigative science journalist and patient advocate for long COVID. They were talking about their long COVID handbook. Danny, to start with you, at that time, you sort of quit the day job, you pivoted away from investigating infection and immunity and you switched then to decoding COVID-19 and what it might mean. And there was a point when people stopped trusting politics and the media and the trust in scientists went up massively. What was that like for you? Was it daunting? It was a bit daunting, but, you know, in a sense, it was um, the job we prepared, prepared for all our lives. You know, I spent my whole life working on viruses, immunity and autoimmunity. And don't forget, you know, we were in lockdown. So the only way I could get back into the lab was actually to deploy those skills to try and do something useful for COVID. So that's what we did seven days a week. And then for Jez, for you, you were in L.A. making a movie, preparing for your fourth marathon. But then you were one of the very early people to contract COVID. And you say that you were smug in the beginning because your immune system was, you felt, stronger than those of the people you saw really suffering when they had the virus. But then you were in for a big shock afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was funny because I was, you know, I was almost as fit as I'd ever been. I was in absolutely peak sort of marathon ready fitness. Um, and my initial symptoms weren't that bad. I was still doing a few hours work a day. Um, and a lot of my friends were sort of laid up in bed and sort of, you know, sort of thermometers and, you know, being cared for by their partners and the rest of it. And um, but I actually felt OK. And I was like, yeah, great. Obviously, being fit must really help your immune system deal with this novel, awful virus. Mm-hmm. Um, only then, as the sort of the weeks ticked by, I realized that my friends were sort of back to normal and I and I wasn't. Um, and that was when I I mean, it was one thing that happened fairly early that I think made me take it, take my recovery or absence of recovery very seriously. And that was this identification of a particular symptom that I recognized from having had a year of post-glandular fever illness 20 years earlier. So once I'd felt that, which came at me sort of four weeks in, I thought, oh, my God, this could be this could be another year of being ill. And so at that point, that was sort of what triggered me to start sort of doing my own research into what might be going on. Yeah. And just just to talk a little bit more about what not back to normal, as you say, meant for you. Mm. You describe your skin being inflamed, these raging Mm. headaches, your cognitive function being impaired. And that was over an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things that I got absolutely wrong early doors, but then we didn't necessarily know any different, was I started in the second week after having it. So I thought I'd sort of got over the acute infection and, you know, you were allowed to go out after a week again. So I started just gently jogging again. And after each jog, I would feel terrible. I'd basically just have to lie down for two or three hours with this splitting headache. And I couldn't really connect this very slow jog with what happened afterwards. And obviously now it seems painfully clear that one of the last things you should do if you're struggling to recover from COVID is is exercise. Um, But yeah, along with that splitting headache and absolute sort of Uh, I mean, brain fog is a slightly reductive term. I personally prefer cognitive dysfunction because all aspects of your cognitive function can be affected. It's not just, oh, I'm just a bit slow today. It's there are times when someone might be talking to me and it's like they're talking Greek. You know, I, I literally can't put together what they're saying. 
<laughs> let mm -hmm. alone form any kind of response. So that's how, I mean, you can't read an email, you can't watch TV or anything like that. So the cognitive dysfunction can be really quite severe as well. Okay. And then crushing fatigue. Yeah, you name it, the symptoms go on and on. And, and Danny, then that crucial point that Jez makes about not resting when initially diagnosed with COVID and what has been discovered now is a strong link between the those who try to recover quickly as Jez did and long COVID symptoms. Is that right? That's an absolute biggie. You know, if I could give advice, almost the biggest piece of advice I'd give is, um, you know, don't try and power your way through your acute COVID infection because, um, you know, we're, well, God, nearly three years into this. So we know a fair amount about it. And intuitively, you want to say, well, I'm bigger than this virus. I'll just, you know, keep on doing my stuff, going to work, jogging, swimming, whatever it is, because I'll beat this virus. And that's kind of the opposite of what you should be doing. As we now know, you should just you know, take it easy and let yourself recover. Is that why then that we hear about, about very many very fit people having long COVID, struggling to recover because they're most likely not to rest when the virus is active? Yeah, well, I think Jez will probably have quite a lot to say about this as well. But from my point of view, you know, I'm on a real kind of soapbox about this, that we have a kind of blame culture where at the beginning, because we knew of the risk factors for severe COVID infection, didn't we, where the people who did badly were perhaps older and more obese, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we felt at the beginning that those were, were the ones who were more likely to get long COVID. And, you know, in that, in that sense, perhaps we could blame them that they had only themselves to blame. And as time has gone by, that's absolutely not the typical long COVID person. The typical long COVID person is often young, fit, energetic, uh, more often female than male. And, you know, maybe they have tried to power through the virus and increase their risk in that way. Have we moved, Danny, away from the point now where people have to prove that they have long COVID or is there still a deal of scepticism out there about it? I, I wish we had moved beyond it, but in my email inbox every day, there are desperate people who haven't managed to convince their GP, haven't managed to get a referral to a long COVID clinic, are facing terrible battles in their employment. Um, and very often the, the irony is that these are frontline people who we were clapping at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, nurses, school teachers, doctors, who just can't get recognition for the disability they've incurred. And no, you know, we, we don't have diagnostic tests, we don't have recognition and people all too often still face a fight. Dr Danny Altman and Gez Mendinger, their long COVID handbook is published by Penguin and is out now. And on Liveline, Niall Horan's mother, Maura Gallagher, was chatting to Joe about a TV programme Niall featured in recently. You want to clarify, rightly so, a couple of uh, points about uh, your son, Niall Horan's appearance in the TV documentary that's, that was on on Sunday night and is now going on Prime. And as you probably heard, it got a bit of criticism here, though there was a lot of pushback on it. Um, and the criticism was because Niall Horan and Lewis Capaldi, but primarily Niall, was such a, a hero figure for so many young people, he should not have been drinking Guinness. You know the argument, Maura. Um, does, do you know if he was drinking Guinness in that TV programme, Maura? I, I know we saw him holding the glass. Yes. I, I, I forget, actually, but it, it was zero, zero. OK. All the way. <laughs> Not <laughs> then. And how do you know that? Well, well, I can only, well, really, I can okay. only speak for the part when he came to Mullingar and he was in the, 
Oh, you were there. Okay, okay. I, I was there and zero, zero was given. and But I couldn't have it because I'm a celiac. But okay. my husband did taste it and said it was lovely. Yeah, they say it's very so, similar to the Guinness. Do, do, yes. do, does Niall, does Niall Horan drink Guinness? Does he drink? Does he drink more? He does. He does drink. Yeah. I think he's partial to a good pint of Guinness. Okay. Yes. Okay. And he's still very young. He's only twenty nine, as you know. His birthday there was last yes. last last month. But but yes. um, you 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 you're upset, I presume, about the fact that this has been focused in on the whole Guinness connection. Do you, do you think that's unfair to Niall? Well, people are entitled to their opinion, but uh, when I heard it was coming on, uh, and I couldn't wait to see Niall and Lewis. Now, maybe I'm a bit biased. I watched (laughs) the show the other night, and Guinness didn't come into my head at all. I was just laughing at the two of them, and they're carrying on. And, you know, like, I know they've been visiting, Guinness and um, but the fact that they were sitting maybe with a couple of glasses or pints of Guinness in their hand, that okay. didn't that didn't register we say with me. I don't go deep into Okay, that's that's fair you enough. Know, that's fair enough. Things. I was I was reading an interview today with Danny O'Reilly, you know Danny from the Coronas, that great band. Uh, it's in the oh, hot yeah. press. And he was saying he, he pals around with Niall when they're in London. Yeah. And he yeah. said, is, and Danny is big himself, so it's, uh, very popular, but Danny said he could not get over how well-known Niall Horan is. He cannot, <laughs> he cannot go anywhere. Where it's, uh, and I just wonder, and he has, he has cracked America, and one of the yeah. reasons I think he's cracked him, I don't know much about this business more, maybe you do, but the, the, one of the reasons I think he's cracked America and he's going to be the new judge on The Voice is that he, anytime he's on those chat shows in America, he's very entertaining and he's very charming. So my question is, do you, as his mother, do you sometimes say, is he really as big as everyone else says he is? Because he is. Do you realise how big your son is in the world stage? I do, but um, it's a little bit, um, you know, you, you just have to kind of let it over the top of my head. Or okay. <laughs> Do you know? I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's strange, like being his mother and looking at him on the television. And, oh, I had a grin from one ear to the other. And, you know, when you think of him as a world, yeah. a world star, it's, Mind blowing, really, you know. And yeah. even to it, me, he's just yeah. nile, you know. Well, of course, he is, of course, he is. And you, do you still give out to him? Uh, I don't have reason <laughs> to give out to him. <laughs> he's a very, he's a very well behaved, but even, even when you were filming in Mullingar for that documentary, yeah. I presume yeah. they couldn't tell people where they were filming or the place would have been mobbed. No, the curtains and nah, he, he was telling me, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Yeah. I felt terrible. And how does he cope with the adulation? How does he, he cope with... Sorry, he, the... he copes very well, actually. Uh, you know, he had... There was security people there that day. Yeah, he take it, you know, outside when he was seen outside with Lewis. They take it in their stride, you know, and they yeah. wave and all the rest and then go into wherever they're going in. And sure, it was as packed inside as it was outside. And then this cheeky question. 
By the way, I'm reading out a question here from one of our team members, Mara. So it's not yeah. Joe. It's not Joe Duffy's question. You're not to give out to me now. Uh, is no. this? This is from one of our team members. Uh, she is about 29 years of age, and she wants to know: Is Niall seeing anyone? Yes. Oh, he is. No, he is. And is that is that a recent well, news? It has been. Okay. He have, has been seen before, and oh, he's okay. brought her home to my oh, car. You've, you've, you've met her, have you? I have indeed. She's a lovely girl. And where's she from? She's from England, and okay. she's not in the business, so that's a good one. <laughs> okay, because he was he was linked, as they always always are, with a with a a number of people over the years, wasn't he? Yes, and well, she's not known. She wouldn't be known. She's not in the oh, business she, at all. She's not in the business, but she's met Mammy Mora. She has met uh, Mammy and, Mora, and Mammy Mora is impressed. Yes, very okay. much. So. Now, a more important question, Mora: Has she met Nanny Margaret? She has indeed um, met, met Nanny Margaret. <laughs> Sat in the kitchen with everything. <laughs> Mammy leaves everything on the table at hand, you know, because she's, you know, the way older people yeah, leave yeah, everything. Yeah. So there was, you know, she pushed back a few bits of things to put down the cup. So, so it was yeah. You spend your time in the kitchen, really, don't you? Of course you? you do. Of course you do. So she got the approval of Nanny Margaret and um, Nanny, our uh, Mammy Mara. Do you want to give me? Don't give me her full name. Do you want to give me her first name? No, I'm not name? giving a name at all. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> oh, that's wise. Maura Gallagher from the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on Today with Claire Byrne, using technology to monitor your general well-being, journalist Adam Maguire was taking a look at how much those gadgets and devices are costing. This is known, I'm told, <laughs> as the quantified self. Yeah, very clunky term. I think self-improvement is probably a better way of putting it. But it's, it's a fairly simple concept, though, even with such a, a, a nonsense kind of title. Uh, essentially, the idea is using technology to record and measure what you're doing in your daily life. Generally, it has a health focus. So, you know, measuring your movement, like you say, or food you're eating. Uh, but it could be anything, really. You know, it could be how much time you're spending reading, uh, practising an instrument or looking at your phone even. And the idea is you take all that information and you try and learn from it and make improvements. You know, maybe, you're, as you say, you're trying to hit certain goals or you're trying to cut back on bad things like too much screen time. Uh, and it's really about applying kind of logical, hard evidence to things that in, in the past you might have been trying to guess and yeah. you know, guesstimate, basically. And it seems like a great idea when you sign up to these things and then it becomes really annoying after about a week. Yeah, very quickly it can become <laughs> yeah. quite an Annoying. Uh, yeah. But it's a growing business, Adam. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And depending on how you count it, it's already worth tens of billions of dollars, uh, projected to grow significantly in the coming years as more people seek to get more proactive in managing their health and their and their wellness. And a good example of that is the smartwatch or, or fitness wearables. They're kind of like the gateway drug for, for this kind of quantified self thing. You know, even the most basic device will, will track your steps, maybe estimate your calories. You have one on there, I, I have see. one on there, yeah. I, I ditched mine. Oh, did you really? Well, yeah. I just, I couldn't get round to charging it and it needed to be charged a lot and yeah, it just that, bugged that, me. Uh, just, that is one of the big, yeah. that this one needs to be charged every day and I, I've actually probably been less active since I've gotten it over the last years than I was before I had one but that's, I can't blame the watch on that, I blame my children. It's, on not, a, it's, not, it's not a kickback against the watch because sometimes you get so annoyed with them buzzing you. And well yeah, this this one tells you regularly to, to have a mindfulness minute which I find oh, really annoying and I, I keep meaning to turn it off but I, I haven't actually. It took me ages to switch that off. Yeah, that that a, one where it says now stop and breathe and I know it's probably good advice but when you're yeah, 
Yeah, but it's Disney. always it's always when you're in the middle of something. Exactly. Which, which maybe is the point that it's trying to make. <laughs> but but they are increasingly popular, and and the more modern ones can do way beyond the steps of you know they can track your sleep and how how good your sleep is as well, making uh, you anxious about your sleep. Well, that's one thing. Yeah, your your blood oxygen level. If you want to know what that is at the moment, they even can pick up on, on potentially your regular heartbeats. Uh, a lot of people have had this issue where their watch is worn, they maybe go to your GP, uh, and they pick up on uh, newer ones. Pick up and change your body temperature, which is useful for things like cycle tracking, but even picking up on an illness before you, you have symptoms the suggestion that maybe down the line it could pick up on a flu or, or COVID uh, before even people realise they have it so all that gets sent, sent back to your phone and then you can analyse that and see uh, and see how you're getting on and sales have skyrocketed of these things especially since the pandemic um, smartwatch sales last year estimated to be worth $22 billion it's predicted to grow to $58 billion by 2028 Apple the big uh, company in this they have about 40% of, of all smartwatches there's also Fitbit devices a lot of them aren't actually smartwatches but that's that's the story. But Apple, by 2019, was outselling the entire Swiss watch industry considerably. They're selling about 30 million Apple watches compared to 20-odd million Swiss-made watches. So huge, huge thing. Uh, and, and lots of other devices out there as well. People are using DNA tests to figure out what their genetics are, what they're predisposed to, you know, um, what they might have intolerances to. Uh, our phones tell us about screen time. You, you can, I even came across a device that can measure your hydration. And essentially, it goes into the toilet and it gives you a green light, a yellow light or a red light, depending on... It goes into the toilet? It goes into the toilet, yeah. I won't go any, into any more detail than that. Oh <laughs> and it can tell you how hydrated you are otherwise. You know. So yeah, lots of things out there and lots of these apps, as you say, that you have to log every day. You have to put your... your yeah, your and, and a lot of these services, you have to log into an app. You have to sign up for them. And uh, companies are, are getting close to doing that work for us, but there's privacy concerns obviously there, isn't there? Yeah, there are, are big privacy concerns because, you know, you're trusting... Uh, fairly immature technology you're trusting companies some of them are fairly immature as well and you're 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 trusting them to hold on to your data there was an example for example uh, in, in the US last year uh, the US regulators alleged that a, a period tracking app was selling user data to Facebook and Google and basically telling people you know, at what point these people were on in, in terms of their cycle. And, you know, some states, when they recently moved in, in the US to tighten abortion laws, some people said delete your track wraps because they could be seized by, uh, by, uh, by, by law authorities and then used to decide if someone had, had maybe had an abortion yeah, or not. These recently. are the things that we don't think about when we press accept. Yes. And there's another thing as well, because, you know, th- there's all of these potential upsides to it. But, you know, Maybe it could be a bad side. You know, in the US, for example, uh, health insurance companies have been incentivizing people, you know, hit your targets and we'll give you gift vouchers. But mm-hmm. the flip side of that could be true too, that they say, well, your premium is going up next year because you're not moving as much as you told us you were. And your glucose monitor is telling us that you're having a chocolate bar every day. So we don't think you're as healthy as you let on when you filled in your form so and said you're very active. The, the, there's huge value then attached well, to there, that information. There is, for, for, for individuals, there is potentially, you know, you could have a situation where your, your health insurance premium or, or could be cheaper because you're, you're more healthy mm-hmm. than, than other people. But even from an individual point of view, I mean, we know people are, are in Ireland and around the world are getting less healthy. Uh, we know the, the risks of a sedentary lifestyle and of a poor diet. But because all of that is kind of long term, you know, it'll affect you down the line. It's very easy to say, oh, well, I'll, I'll deal with that. You know, I'll get on the diet next week. But if you have something that's nudging you constantly and saying, you know, that wasn't great. You move, move a bit more. You shouldn't eat as much of that. It might just, you know, help nudge you in the right direction. Adam McGuire from today with Claire Byrne. 
and in the morning, getting into the Halloween mood in a sustainable way with Dainty Dress Diaries DIY expert Catherine Carton from Today with Claire Byrne. It's become a huge trend. Yeah, you know what? Every year I see the autumnal decor section just get bigger and bigger and earlier and earlier. Around about September time, you start to see these little autumnal wreaths sneaking in. So it's definitely getting bigger every year. Absolutely is. Now, there is a big issue though around this that we want to address today, the waste, because there can be a lot of plastic that gets thrown out and then bought again next year and we want to take a look at a more sustainable approach yeah. don't we? so compostable decor and as well not just with the wastage I have a small house so I don't have a lot of space to be storing all of the kind of seasonal stuff so something I actually noticed um, this year is decorative veg and I seen it in a garden centre but actually I was in the supermarket yesterday and they had you know pumpkins and you know all the gourds and different quirky shaped veg this time of year and that looks really good in table decor on porches if you want to do a little display on a mantelpiece and the great thing about that is you can cook with it when you're finished in a couple of weeks or you can smash it up and leave it outside for wildlife and the birds will eat it and things like also just with the pumpkins if you do leave them outside just be careful with hedgehogs because I think it can give them a little upset tummy (laughs) Um, and then things like pine cones Walnuts. I always say when you're foraging, if it's already on the forest floor, then it's fair game. So if you just take enough, you can use pine cones, uh, string it together to make some wreaths. Mm-hmm. Kids can get, get involved in that or you can do like bunting for mantle pieces. Um, you can thread walnuts, things like that. Yeah, and I like that idea you have that, you know, you may already have a wreath maybe that you bought yes. last year and you can kind of dicky that up using also, the cones that you find. Reuse an old Christmas wreath or reuse your Christmas wreath because if you stick, you know, pine cones or dried orange slices, um, dried flowers, things like that. In a couple of weeks time, not like too far away, you can then just swap out the bows and then you've got like a Christmas mm-hmm. wreath. So you're kind of getting a bit of longevity out of it. And I'm sure you're those... making the wreaths though from scratch, aren't you? <laughs> so you can do, if you are feeling crafty, a lot of the florist suppliers, you can pick up the bases much cheaper than if you go to, you know, somewhere else or the pound shops as well. You can get a base. Um, I like using kind of like wood and wicker bases and you can just use, I'm trying to cut down on the amount of like glue I'm using so I use florist wire and you can just use that to wrap around your cones and stick it on and then that makes it easier then if you want to remove things and then change it up then for Christmas. Catherine Carton from Today with Claire Byrne and that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.